Hi, everybody. I'm Matt Bird. I'm James Kennedy. And this is the Secrets of Story podcast. We're back, baby. We're back. Hi, James. It has been a long time. Yeah, th- those two Brits really knocked us off our game, didn't they? They did. I, <laughs> I No, thought... no, they didn't. Gary, Gary, Sophie, I'm sorry. You, you did not. We, we just got busy. What were we busy with, Matt? We have been very, very busy living the life of successful writers, which completely goes against the entire ethos of this podcast. What are you talking about? The whole point of this podcast is to become (laughs) successful writers. What do you mean? The whole point of this podcast was for us to bitterly lament that we had failed to become successful writers. And that is not the to... point of this podcast. The point of this podcast <laughs> is to offer up to the gods words that will cause them to pay attention to us and realize that we are worthy of bestowing favor upon. Only if you express yourself out loud do the gods hear you. If you just keep it all inside, the gods don't hear you. Like, like I remember being really into Justin Roiland's podcast, uh, Grandma's Virginity. And that was before uh, he did Rick and Morty. And he was just lamenting and lamenting and lamenting on this really funny podcast about he, how his career wasn't going anywhere. And after doing this you know, podcast that nobody listened to for a long time and being very funny on it, he got Rick and Morty. Yep. So it works. No, it totally does work because you know I will take the majority of the blame for our absence because I was very busy. I mentioned this in our last podcast, which was several months ago. This guy at Facebook was just a fan of the blog and then became a fan of my books. He did the first ever review of Secrets of the Story when the book came out five years ago. And he was also a fan of this podcast. He was a fan of everything. And then one day he just called me and said, hey, you know, we're, uh, we've been using your book to train our AI. And we realized, why don't we just hire you? So then he hired me and that job lasted nine months, uh, 10 months, I guess. They eventually ran out of money, unfortunately. they uh, Facebook basically cut the budget for new projects. And we were a new project that Facebook was half-heartedly funding, and then they cut the budget for it. So that job has come to an end. But it was a wonderful job. I made a lot of money, and I really enjoyed the work. We created an entire fantasy world. So yes, we spent time training the AI, but we ended up spending a lot of time creating, we decided that Facebook needed its own IP. And so we created a fantasy world and it is amazing. We, former guest of this podcast, Lou Anders, I hired him to come on and join us. And he is was hired to be an expert at fantasy world building. He did an amazing job. Significantly, you did not offer me this job. No. Uh, your, your podcast boon companion. But now, uh, we'll you pass over that are, in silence. You are a successful novelist, James. So since we last spoke, your novel, Dare to Know, had come out recently, I guess, when we did our last episode several months ago. And it has just had success after success. You have gotten an amazing number of very cool people who say they like your novel. Yeah, I mean, Matt Bird's not one of them. But yeah, I got Cory Doctorow to say that he liked it and a bunch of other people. But uh, uh, very significantly for me, we sold the film rights. Yes. Uh, not an option. We sold the film rights. Uh, the the and so I I'm very happy about that. So, but I, I think that we should stop talking about our successes right now and get into the meat of the podcast. Although I, I will say one thing before we get into this, I run a film festival. I still do. I've run it for 12 years called the 92nd Newbury Film Festival, which kid filmmakers create short movies and tell the stories of Newbury winning books in about 90 seconds. Movies are due January 13th, 2023. Get those movies in. You've got a couple months to make them. And I really, we're going to be doing live screenings again next year. Get them in. Go to 92 com to see if a live screening is coming to your town. Probably is. 
Fantastic. What are you going to do for your introductory skit this year? I, I don't know. Uh, I, I, I always wait until December and I write it in two days. It's, uh, it's, it, there's always song and dance involved. Um, it's always a lot of fun. So, yeah. Fantastic. All right. Well, that's exciting. That's great that you're still doing that, despite being the lord of all you survey. And <laughs> that's fantastic. So, yes, let's go ahead. Should we go ahead? And it's been so long. It is. I mean, how long has it been since our last episode? Uh, there's no telling. There's no way of calculating or even checking. So no um, way of knowing. <laughs> it's been many months. So what are, what are we going to discuss tonight, James? Well, this is a little off the beaten path for our podcast. Usually we don't discuss other books about writing. But there's this book that a lot of people are talking about. And I read it. And I found it so interesting. That I thought that we should devote an episode to it. The book is called uh, Craft in the Real World by Matthew Salisis. Um, it's not a book of writing advice, although it touches on that, I guess, but it's a critique actually of practices of creative writing workshops, like the folk ways of the MFA world. And it makes a lot of bold and interesting claims about how the notion of storytelling, you know, craft isn't a neutral term, but reflects not only asserted and limited taste, but even more crucially, like a particular political project, a class structure, racial power dynamics. And this notion of craft should be examined, especially since it seems to exclude stories and authors and literature that maybe don't fit its parameters. And so this book, Craft in the Real World, is more than just a critique. It's also bold enough to give positive ideas on how to fix this problem. But he knows what he's talking about. He has a lot of experience in the MFA world, both as a student and as a teacher. Would you say that's a fair overview of the book, Matt? Yes, I would say that that is a good setup of what the book is. I went ahead, I listened to it a while ago, and of course, it always takes us forever to get our act together. So we, I listened to it a while ago for us to do this podcast, and then we ended up not recording yet. And then, so I went back and I re-listened to it. I got lots of time now. I am retired and I get to do all sorts of things with my time. And so I re-listened to the first half and took notes. So I've got notes and I've got, I've jotted down what I consider to be his three thesis statements. Or do you want to hear what I think are his three thesis statements? Absolutely. It is hard to say three thesis statements. Tried that's a tongue twister. Try saying it's that even harder to say because I have an embarrassing lisp. So let's pass over that in silence. I would say his three thesis statements are: first, craft that pretends it does not exist is the craft of conformity, or worse, complicity. Number two, the writer is better off if she is aware of the ways in which she participates in and creates meaning, so that she can mean things more consciously and conscientiously. That's really good. And number three, you should prefer talking about tuning into yourselves and your audience rather than saying things like finding your voice, which seems more about the cultural constructions that make us say one person has a voice and another does not, or what kind of voice is acceptably unique, bold, etc. I think this is these are great three theses. You got me to say it to sum up the book. I think it kind of deracializes his critique. I think we need to go into that a bit more, but I think that that's a good hundred mile over the earth view of what he's saying and that's exactly what he would accuse me of i think he's like it's like okay so it's funny like the very first thing he talks about in the book is something that you and i have talked about because he talks about being in a workshop and generally speaking the traumatizing nature of workshops is a major element of the book and he talks about being in a workshop and the white authors in the workshop saying oh we can't tell what race everybody is in your story you should say what race they are and He's like, well, do you want me to say that about everybody or just the non-white characters? And you can just assume that the 
characters who aren't specified are white and the characters who are specified are other races. And then he talks about what a difficult bind it is. And this is something, even I fell into this with you when I, you were having me read one of your kids novels. I was like, you can't have your main character instantly take control of the ship he's in because, you know, then you've got, you know, the white male comes in and is given control of everything. And you're like, he's not a white male. If anything, he's green. <laughs> he's, he's half frog. Yeah. I, can, can we like backtrack just a little bit and just for people who don't know, just say what is workshop? Like the idea of a writing workshop. Not, maybe not everybody knows what that is. So this is utterly fascinating. A lot of the work he's doing in this book is summing up what other people have said in other books, which made me want to read all of these other books. But a lot of people have been taking issue with the sort of racist, misogynist, ableist, straightist, what's that word? I don't know if that word exists, view of workshops. But he talks about this fascinating book about the origins of the writer of the Iowa Writers Workshop. So he talks about how the first MFA program. I knew that the Iowa Writers Workshop was the most famous novelist MFA program. He said it was the first one. And he goes into the history of the program, which was very explicitly an anti-communist thing where they were like, we are going to find this in my notes, Iowa Writers Workshop, the poem at peace with capitalism, and it talked about craft expressed values that could be weaponized against communism. These are in my notes. So yeah, yeah. So craft has embedded in it certain political and social values, like like or the way that the University of Iowa like model is, which has been kind of mechanically repeated at universities and in just like folk ways of creative writing. This is context that we all know, but it's bracing to be reminded of it. The way literature is produced today is professionalized in a way that is a real break with the past. Yes. Like 100 years ago, there were no creative writing professors. The idea of a writing workshop in which you have a class of like 10 people around the same age and skill level sitting around a table commenting on each other's work led by a creative writing professor, probably with the goal of getting published capitalistically, is a mid-20th century American novelty. Like before that, writers were like grubby, hand-to-mouth freelancers like George Orwell or Rinch avant-garde weirdos with social connections like Gertrude Stein or Pam by the word hacks like Lovecraft, or they lived on the money of wealthy patrons, which is what James Joyce did, or they're just wealthy dilettantes themselves like Proust. Every situation was different. There's no set professional path to become an author. And even today, obviously, a lot of writers are still like that. But in 1936, the University of Iowa invents this concept of the creative writing workshop, which you know, which we kind of described, which you can get a degree in this. You can even get a job teaching in it too. And that changes everything. You have not been through this. You never got an MFA. Yeah, um, I wanted it, to ask you about that. You've been part of this MFA world. I've never taken a creative writing class. You have never I, taken, even in at Notre Dame, you never took a single creative writing class? No. Uh, and I have to say, reading this book, I'm really glad I haven't. <laughs> yes. Like, like the idea of workshop sounds nightmarish. And he goes, it's almost like he goes out of his way to make it sound really nightmarish. And I have to say, even though I really love the fact that it's not just a critique and he does a positive program of saying, well, here's how a workshop could be fixed. Even his fixes sound awful. Like, like I, I, I don't, it just all seems awful. You know, I think I've said before on this podcast that the way to win any argument is to say to the other person, tell me how your side would work. Tell me how your vision would work. And then (laughs) you instantly win any argument because no one can do that. Everybody can say why you're wrong, but no one can ever can say what should happen instead. And everybody falls apart. And indeed, that happens in this book as well, where he makes a very strong case in the first half of the book for why all the things that are wrong with workshop and all the things that are wrong with MFA programs. And then the second half of the book is 
he is then saying like, okay, here's how workshops should be run instead. And I'm like, oh God, no, <laughs> that's, <Yeah. laughs> that's, you've taken an awful system and made it somehow even worse. It starts really getting big from like 41 to 65, right? Like it's like, you, like you said, it's low key enlisted as part of the Cold War effort. Yes. And they get something individual, not collective. It's about personal experience, not large historical forces, right? That, that's like yes. very compatible with American individualism and capitalism, not he, collective and communist. There, right? He says in the book, Iowa claimed to, to be the last refuge of the individual. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so as this workshop model grows in popularity, more and more writers get trained in this model. And this model fostered, he claims, his particular mindset towards fiction. And I think he's right. The workshops claim that they are just teaching pure technical craft, separate from politics and race and social issues. I mean, they don't even bring it up. So therefore, you really know that it's hidden. But in fact, a whole worldview is being smuggled in and replicated through workshop. And what nouns that get said without any definite articles are always kind of suspect. Like, oh, this is workshop. It's workshop. It's improv. <laughs> uh, uh, I learned this in group. You know, I always know that. Oh, oh, well, how did I, oh, I found it out in therapy. Like, like there's always, there, there's something's being smuggled in when you have uh, words that don't have definite articles. What are these workshop values? Let's talk about that. So I went to Columbia University. I got a Master of Fine Arts in film. But okay. so, and I chose to specialize. I was sort of let in more for my directing than my screenwriting, but I chose to focus on screenwriting once I got there, even uh -huh. though we were all expected to both direct and write. And so I was doing writing. I very quickly came to regret it and then have regretted it ever since. I feel like it was not a good use of my time. I feel like it was not a good program. I've talked about in my first book how if you were to ever go like, well, you know, I don't think this is working. I think that maybe, you know, you could reconceive this as and we were told like, no, 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 no. You are not supposed to talk about reconceiving anything. You are just supposed to say that everything is absolutely beautiful. And here's how to make this, you know, more of itself. And here's how to purify the vision of the artiste. <laughs> is, this how, is this how Salisus like kind of represents it? I think he has a different take, right? I think Salisus is saying that you were being told, and I think this is more the case in MFA novel writing programs than in screenwriting programs, that you don't have a strong enough voice. That, mm -hmm. you know, you need, it's like, oh, you haven't found your voice. You have to find your voice and you have to let your characters speak to you and listen to your characters speaking to you and find a strong, unique voice. And he talks about how they tell you to de defamiliarize the familiar and you have to make it new. And these are the traditional things that you're told in an MFA program. And he talk he questions all of this. And he says that- Rightly so. He says that fiction, he says something interesting. He says, fiction should not make it new. It should make it felt. That mm, mm -hmm. if you, um, and then he quotes Audre Lorde saying, the master's tools will never dismantle the master's house. He says that if you are trying to find the voice of your character or listen to the voice of your character or divine things, and I talk about this in my first book, about how this idea of you've got your fingers on the Ouija board and you're not supposed to control where it's moving. Salisa says that's all bullshit. He is saying that that inevitably the voice that your writing workshop is going to encourage you to find is the dominant white male, cis, straight, ableist voice. And because those are the people in your workshop who are critiquing you. Because those are the people in your workshop, but even more so, that's the market. That's yeah. the that's where the, the money the is. The perceived that's market. Where the, 
that's where the publishers are. That's where, you know, that's who is running the publishing houses. That is who is running the journals. That is who is running the people who Uh will publish your work. But, you know, it's also, it goes all the way back to this idea of, it goes all the way back to Aristotle. He talks about this idea of the individual, this idea that writing is individualism, that Western Mm -hmm. writing Western writing is individualism. And then when you bring non-Western writing before Western critics, they say, oh, well, this is good and this is weak. And here's why, you know, Chinese literature isn't good enough for Americans. And here's why, you know, Japanese literature is American. It's interesting. He talks about, we always like to talk about different structures. He talks about the Japanese four-act structure, which is different from the Aristotle's yeah, three acts. Yeah, I want to take issue with that, but go on. I jotted that down, of course, because I always like I always like jotting down structures. I can work it into my structure chart. But he is saying that you are just going to end up recreating power structures if you do not write intentionally, if you do not create your own voice very intentionally, if you do not create your characters. He talks about how individualism does not free one from cultural expectations. It is a cultural expectation. Okay, there's a bunch of things that are kind of verities of workshop, right? Uh, Students are told that good writing is when you have vivid and concrete representations of personal experience. There's an emphasis on characters' personal choices rather than, say, large-scale social or historical forces. A good story is driven by character, not plot. Show, don't tell. Kill your darlings. No deus ex machinas. Uh, Characters should be round, not flat. Uh, We all recognize these slogans. Salesis is refreshingly says what we call craft is nothing more than or less than a set of expectations. These expectations are never neutral. And, and so, especially since these workshops are always white, cisgender, and like middle class. And so he talks about how, okay, we have this notion of agency in stories and how, like, okay, in the like stories that are like in fashion now, in like workshoppy kind of things, like, oh, we got to have, or, or like you always hear like this kind of mechanically repeated advice. You know, oh, your characters always have to have all this agency, have to push the scene forward. And that's great if for a privileged audience in which they are the kind of person who does have the possibility that their agency could push a situation forward. But when you have people who are subjugated or enslaved or something like that, like those, the, the stories that he, he claims uh, that are more popular or, or have gained currency among such populations are things like, which is like magical occurrences, miracles, coincidences, th- uh, deus ex machina, people being like lifted, not out of their own effort or, or, or agency out of a situation into another situation in a way that like kind of would make a modern workshopper or somebody who grew up cutting their teeth on Raymond Carver stories kind of be like, Ooh, I don't know. That, that seems kind of tasteless. Um, but he's saying all these kind of stories are, although they, they are a legitimate part of like the history of storytelling are kind of illegitimately uh, cut out in the workshop model. Like it, 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 it don't, they don't follow these rules. He talks about how like in African-American stories, you tend to get more, like if you have a reunion, they say in Western writing that, oh, the reunion can't be a coincidence. And it's bad writing when you have a reunion, that's a coincidence. And he says that when African-Americans actually manage to reunite their families, then it tends to be something that is more likely to happen due to coincidence than due to their own actions that, you know, they right, have to right. rely, they they often would have to rely on sort of miraculous occurrences to happen to actually manage to cobble their families back together. 
and that this is more something that is an acceptable storytelling form in their culture. He's misrepresenting all of Western literature. And I'm going to hit this again and again, based on, you know, everything post 1936 with the University of Iowa workshop model. But if you ever read Dickens, you know, it's full of crazy coincidences and magical happenings. If, if, If you read like Tristam Shandy, you know, you see it's all full of crazy non-goal directed behavior if you read oh, the well, odyssey you've got like kind of repeated things that are not things made new but you he always says the wine dark sea he always says circumspect penelope the mm-hmm. ultimate example of characters running into each other due to coincidence over and over again as lame as rob the wicked couple and the heroic leading character accidentally run into each other like five different times over the course yeah. of the story and it's like, what, you again? And I'm like, this is, <laughs> this is the most contrived novel ever written. Yeah, and, and, and yet it's super popular. Everybody loves it. And, and like, there's a, like, in Kafka, if you can go to the 20th century with this, like, in this story, America, like, the, the, the main character who comes to America keeps running into the same four or five people again and again as he travels across the country. He is talking about these rules that were made up for University of Iowa stuff, but they don't necessarily correspond to the rules of Western literature as it's written. And I'm going to return to this point later. Before we go on with that, one of the peculiarities of these workshops, or so I'm told, because I've never been in them, is that everyone reads your work. And then they all discuss it in class while you're in the room and you're not allowed to respond or say anything. That's what gives poignancy to that story that you told earlier about everybody's discussing Salus's race, but he's not allowed to say anything. This is called yeah. like the cone of silence. And he starts off the preface of the book telling this wrenching anecdote that you just said about have forced to sit silently while mostly write, writers discuss my race, he says. And the other students of the story should inform the reader if any characters are like him, people of color. But who is the reader? You know, is there an assumption that no mention of race means a character is white? White is literature is default. So if he mentions things in his stories that the white workshoppers don't understand because they aren't part of his culture, he feels pressure to smooth over the rough edges of his story to make it digestible to them. Salas knows how to make this point for his intended audience, which he knows will be probably mostly white people. He puts us at, later in the book in the point of view of somebody who's a fantasy author who's in a class with a bunch of literary fiction students and a literary fiction instructor. And this fantasy author is trying to like show them like, oh, here's my story about elves and, and magic. And you know these characters are flat, but it's by design. And nobody understands. And they're trying to tell him, oh, all this is wrong. It's wrong. And he's like, but no, it, it works according to the stuff that I like. And then, and then he kind of gets us on the side of this fantasy author because we've all, you know, most people have read it like Tolkien and understand. He said, okay, now let me expand your point of view to you know somebody who is like him who's like you know korean american or whatever and it's 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 a nice move he knows his audience He, he knows where to find them where they are and bring them to that place he's really good rhetorically he he's able to get you to emotionally sign on to his point and his points are almost all completely reasonable i agree with like 90 percent of what he says but he gets you to sign on to it emotionally before you sign on to it rationally which as we all know anybody who knows rhetoric is half the battle as um, any listener of this podcast knows i was about to say we duke it out rhetorically every week even now after it's we haven't done an episode in nine months i still d- default to saying that we record this podcast every week <laughs> but here's the thing about that cone of silence though i think the original idea was good Because its original function, I think, was progressive. When I first heard about it, I thought it was progressive because it's to shut down the loudmouth dudes who, like, every time somebody says a 
uh, criticism of their story. I say, well, actually, what I meant was blah, 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 blah. And they take like a half hour to explain what they really meant and why that person was wrong. Salison says, it forced men used to being heard to stop and listen to their likely audience. Ironically, the original idea of the cone of silence is a, is a good and like a progressive thing. But ironically, for something that came out of the Cold War, put forward as an alternative to communism, the cone of silence in the workshop sounds like Chinese communist struggle session. You know, <laughs> like during the Cultural Revolution in 1960s, right. you're not allowed to talk and everybody criticizes you. It's a weird irony, isn't it? Yeah, it's funny. He he keeps being critical of the cone of silence. And I'm like, I don't know. Isn't this, we didn't have an official cone of silence at Columbia. And there were times I wished we did. There were times I wished, you know, that I could get out what I was saying about something without the author interrupting me. And so at first, Salus sort of had win me over to saying this was a bad thing. And he finally did when he talked about gardening. And he talked about how, you know, if you were growing your garden and you're working in your garden and a neighbor comes by and says, oh, here's your garden. Well, here's what I think of your garden. And starts talking about like, you should have grown this here. You should have done this. You should have done this. And you're like, well, let me tell you about my garden. Let me tell you about, you know, what the soil was like, how much light this area gets versus how much light this area gets, why the garden grew the way it did and how it's growing. I don't garden, but my wife gardens a lot and she gets a lot of nice compliments from people walking by in the neighborhood. And I was just suddenly, Salus has put me in the shoes of my wife trying to take notes on her garden without being to explain why the garden grew the way it did. And I'm like, oh yeah, that would suck. <laughs> like, you know, that that he is he is, like you said, he is very strong rhetorically. He is making a he is winning me over to the idea that the cone of silence actually sucks. For white dudes who are used to being able to blow past anybody in the room, it was sort of a good idea, but that if you're someone who has to explain the cultural context of your story, it's a bad idea. And that we are we are trying to make space for a different sort of student now in MFA programs. I, I'm really at a disadvantage here because I don't really know what it's really like now in an MFA program. Like what is happening at the University of Iowa now? I don't know. I mean, is it is it as nightmarish as Salus's makes it sound to be? Or is it like he's like telling all these horror stories of like, I had a teacher or I heard about a teacher which he said, every story has to be 15 pages, no more, no less. Like all these like meaningless rules and like uh, you're learning with a bunch of people who are just as bad as writing as you. And then, but plus, there's a natural jockeying and posturing for power that always happens in group dynamics. And right. maybe some people get off on that and it inspires them, but it wouldn't for me. Because for me, writing is an offering of vulnerability in many ways. And also, no wine before it's time, man. You know, sometimes you write something and you have to let it develop in an embarrassing way for a while before it becomes something you want to show people. But if you're in a workshop, it feels like, oh, you got to produce something every week and you show it to people. And if you show something, it's kind of like the frost comes in Florida when the oranges, you know, haven't fully bloomed yet and say it kills a whole orange crop. If you had just let the oranges grow before the frost came, the oranges would have been fine. Um, yeah. I mean, I, that's one thing I liked. I think one reason that people like workshop and people like MFA programs is that, you know, you there's a lot of churn. Pages are due every week, and you get them out the door, and you get them discussed, and, and you don't linger over them too long. And I think that that is, I think that's one of the, I think that's a feature, not a bug. I think that that's something that people really like. I think it depends so on the writer. something that I liked. I think okay. it depends on the writer. I think some writers, there are spiders, and there are um, uh, uh, another kind of insect. <laughs> and a spider is somebody who slowly and uh, kind of uh, uh, deliberately builds their web and doesn't doesn't need or want anybody else 
to interfere with it until it's done. And then there's somebody who's make a more social kind of, it's like, I don't know, a bee. And what they do relies upon a whole hive to get it done with them. You right. know, and a spider works alone and a bee works with others. And I'm more of a spider and, and maybe you're more like a bee. I like not being precious about my work. You do it, you get it out the door, you see what people think of it, you write something entirely different the next week. And to me, the best thing is never what I've been working on for a while. The best thing is the thing I haven't started yet. The best thing I can do is just churn through, cycle through what I have as quickly as possible and find the better stuff on the other side of it. The thing is, University of Iowa and the writing workshop and all that stuff, how much cultural power do they really have? Because, number one, a lot of literary fiction does have coincidences and magic and stuff like like Michael Chabon or whatever like that, or Salman Rushdie. And, and like, I wonder if he's like focusing too much on like something that doesn't even exist. It was like something that a, a straw man from like the 60s, you know, yeah. like, oh, everybody's like Raymond Carver. It's like, who writes like Raymond Carver now? You know, like, who is he addressing? What problem is he trying? I mean, I, I but again, I don't know. Because I'm not in an MFA program and I've never been and I wasn't I'm not in one now. I wasn't one back then. And he's a guy who's been through it and he teaches it now, so he knows better than me. It's always gonna be tough to disagree with somebody who's read more than me. He looks like he's smarter than me, and he knows more <laughs> about the thing that he's talking about than me. But I just wanna register my suspicion. Is it really like this? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that you talk about the hegemony and you talk about how what is acceptable. I think that if he's going into these MFA programs saying that Raymond Carver wasn't all that, that that's going to feel very lonely for him. That there are certain people who rule certain roosts. I get the feeling that sort of the primacy of Raymond Carver as the master of the short story has sort of been replaced by George Saunders a little bit. And he knows and he's sort Uh of out of date and i wonder what i wonder how he feels about saunders yeah it's funny that he doesn't mention saunders like that is like the mod yeah you really nailed it there like he is like the the new modern mfa master for for good or for ill um and i mean i i like george saunders He's, he's great like um but like i i think like he is the person who like everybody agrees oh yeah george saunders yeah. You know, um, and 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 there's nothing problematic about him either. He just seems like he's a nice guy <laughs> hanging out at the University of Syracuse. Like, yeah, he was friends with David Foster Wallace, but you know, he didn't. You know, it doesn't. It doesn't sound like he did anything bad. Uh, um, and, and, and like all of his, he seems to have the correct politics. His stories are yeah, pretty adventurous in some ways, but they're not too adventurous. Uh, um, but he's not Raymond Carver. He's not. He, he's got like a, a lot of whimsy and weirdness. I wonder why. Yeah, he. It seems like he's fighting yesterday's battle, but yeah. I don't know because I'm not in, I don't know how these MFA programs are taught. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, certainly the cynical reading of Salas's book is that certainly when I was assigned writing advice books, they were all by cis, straight, ableist, white men. There's just not a lot of books talking about the problem with that point of view and enabling that other point of view. And I am sure that every single MFA program in the country for their upcoming semester has assigned this book. <laughs> has assigned <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. book because it uh, is... Very capitalist. He found a, a gap in the market. <laughs> he found a market inefficiency and he filled it. So, hey, hats off to you, Matthew Salisus. Uh, um... <laughs> but, uh, I am sure, you know, I, I, I'm not sure that's a, that's a good way to get rich, but I'm sure that everybody is going to be assigning this book because it desperately fills a hole in the market. This is, it fills a desperately needed uh, hole in the market that desperately needed to be filled in terms of, you know, getting a different perspective in this area, which no one else had provided. And I think it's very good. I think it's great to have this book. I think it is great 
I certainly wish this book had existed when I was in my MFA program so that we could begin to have these conversations. I mean, definitely, I regret ever doing an MFA program. I would never do an MFA program now. I suspect that yeah. if, if I were a recent college graduate right now and trying to and thinking, hey, I might want to become a professional screenwriter, should I get an MFA? I graduated back in 2010 and the term mansplaining had not been invented yet. And generally speaking, the privacy of the white male was not anywhere near as challenged as it is right now. And I have always been an explainer. It's what I do. Uh It's it's what I do in my books. You've got two books of explaining. Yeah. (laughs) And I've always said actually a lot. So in my first book, originally I had the whole thing laid out to say like, oh, here's a misconception about writing, but actually, (laughs) and then I'd say what was actually true. And then- In between writing the book and publishing the book, or in between writing the book and submitting the final manuscript, actually became demonized. And, you know, like they say, where does a mansplainer get his water? Where? From a well, actually. And and so then suddenly the word actually was politicized and demonized. Uh And so then I took it out and I decided to put in instead, au contraire. contraire. (laughs) And... (laughs) Then the problem is that then the person who read my audiobook, Eric Michael Summer, sort of would put a little gusto whenever he would say au contraire. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so since the phrase au contraire, because I had to take out the word actually, appears occurs like more than 100 times in the book, that many of my audible.com reviews are like, oh my God, the au contraires. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> That's awesome. But, uh, and then even the ones, there's even like the leading review right now, if you sort them by most helpful, it's a positive review, but it said, tell a bad story or contraire. <laughs> One of the things that we've learned over the past like seven years is to get attention, do something wrong uh, and harmless. I, I think you, you do it there. I mean, like it, it kind of rubs you the wrong way, but then you remember it. Can I talk about a little bit where I part from Salus's? He's got a lot of broad generalizations, um, and I don't mind those generalizations, especially when one is being contentious. He's written a contentious book, right? Yes. And I think it's great that he's written a contentious book. Um, it's a bestseller. Everybody loves it, like we said. Look around online. Nobody wants to say anything bad about this book or engage it in a robustly critical way, which does it a disservice. Well, this I is mean, a contentious- say that When we originally talked about doing this book, we were t- discussing with Keir Graff what we should discuss as a topic. And he says, well, what I'd really like to discuss is this new book I'm write- reading. And he told me about this book for the first time. And he said, but I don't think three white men should discuss this book. And I don't, you know, I think if we're going to get three white men together, we shouldn't be discussing this book. And then later you said, oh, Matt, I've been reading the book now and I think we should discuss it, the two of us. And I'm like, well, you know, should we have just two white, cis, straight, able men discussing this book? And you said, I have no time for that. <laughs> you said, I have no time for that argument. But so you you are a braver man than Kiergraf. Kiergraf was like, um, I don't know if we should be the ones to discuss it. You're like, hell yeah, we're going to discuss it. And now I suggested that maybe we invite Matthew Sillis on. And you said that he, what did you say? You said that he he was outside of our league. He was, yeah. uh, he, yeah. was uh, he was too big. He is too big yeah. for our, you know, I think that- But also we couldn't talk about it, frankly- done, we can't talk about it, frankly, if he's here, you know? I think, I think. Because I mean, he would yeah. be our guest and we'd have to extend him the, the, the courtesies of a guest and we couldn't be as robust. I think it's better to do it this way. Okay. Um, I, yeah, I mean, I think, I think he probably, you know, I think if we had 
not had nine months without an episode, I would have felt more secure in inviting him on. And I think we could have had a wonderful discussion. Mm. And I think, you know, people, people like to talk about their books. People like to go on. This book, it's a bestseller. Everyone loves it. Look around online. Nobody wants to say anything bad about it or engage in it with in a robustly critical way, which does it a disservice. This is a contentious book. So the way to engage with it isn't just to roll over and say everything in it is right, but to enter the spirit of the thing and be contentious too. Are you surprised, Matt, that I want to be contentious? I am not surprised, but I I, I admire your your I admire your brave I admire your braveness for it's not 2020. Come being on. willing to be contentious with a book that is challenging your hegemony. So he has a lot of broad generalizations. I don't mind those generalizations, especially when one is being contentious. You kind of have to do it to make your point in a visceral rhetorical way. But some yeah. of them grated on me as I read through them. He characterizes Western literature, you know, British literature, in the way that we're all used to reading in seventh grade. He writes, oh, it's all exposition, inciting incident, rising action, climax, falling action, resolution, denouement. But to think about of plot and story shape in this way is cultural, he says, and represents the dominance of a specific cultural tradition. Look, this is me talking now. Nobody thinks about stories this way except for English teachers. Writers in particular, or at least good original writers, don't think this way. Salesis goes on to say, in contrast, Chinese, Korean, and Japanese stories have developed a four-act rather than a three- or five-act structure. In Japanese, it is called Kisho Tenketsu, Key, Introduction, Show, Development, Ten, Twist, Ketsu, Reconciliation. Okay, this is me again. That's interesting. And there's plenty of Western literature that also follows this structure. Or actually, more accurately, you can take a lot of works of art and describe it by three-act or four-act or five-act, depending, depending on how you want to describe it. Most works of art are elastic enough to be described by any of these. Time and again, Salus tries to make Western and non-Western traditions of literature seem more distinct than they really are. There is so much slippage and overlap, especially if you take into account not just late 20th century, early 21st century examples, but examples from all throughout the history of, of Western literature, especially medieval. Parts like this got me impatient. He says, oh, while Western narrative comes from romantic and epic tradition, Chinese narrative comes from a tradition of gossip and street talk. Chinese fiction has always challenged historical record and accepted versions of reality. Western storytelling developed from a tradition of oral performances meant to recount heroic deeds for an audience of the ruling class. That's a big claim. And I, I know he's smarter than me, but I think it's wrong. Like tradition of gossip and street talk, like street talk, that's much of James Joyce's Ulysses. That's On the Road and Ginsburg and the Beats. That's Confederacy of Dunces. Street talk, that's Huckleberry Finn is nothing but street talk. Dickens is street talk. Gossip, that's Austin. That's Vanity Fair. Essentially, all of Faulkner is street talk and gossip. Boswell's Life of Johnson is street talk and gossip. Goldsmith's Diary of a Nobody, street talk, gossip. To try to draw a line from a tradition of oral performances meant to recount heroic deeds for an audience of the ruling class to those books is folly. Salus's reports a reported difference in Eastern writing and Western writing by quoting another writer. He says, it's like a Chinese teapot, which unlike an American teapot is worth much more use than new, prized for how many teas have already been in it so that a flavor of a new tea mixes the flavors before it. All right. I don't know from teapots, but that is explicitly already how Western culture or any culture already works. Shakespeare writes plays based on plots that aren't his, sometimes using mythological or historical characters his audience already knows. Ulysses, again, is just the wanderings of Odysseus transplanted to Dublin. It relies upon you knowing about Odysseus and a hundred other previous things for it to be effective. I could go on, but you get it. This is not as alien to the West as he makes it out to be. 
especially the medieval tradition, medieval tradition, like stories are particularly praised because they are not original. Like the, the idea of something being original as a good thing is a relatively new thing. It's about 300 years old. And I think, okay, maybe Salus is, is talking about literary modernism. You know, okay, then he's right. But that is just one particular flavor of the Western tradition. The psychological realism of Raymond Carver, whoever, is just one strand of Western lit. And frankly, like if we were talking about George Saunders, maybe no longer even the dominant one. He says to the contrast from Eastern literature, when in the Western canon, we encounter strategies like the interrupting author or commentary from other characters, it's often as a part of the postmodernist project of finally challenging the earlier perceived authority and authenticity of the author. Those strategies, this is me, are as old as Don Quixote. It's so common, it happens in children's literature. C.S. Lewis is constantly barging into the Narnia books to make some interrupting authorial statement. None of this is necessarily postmodern. It's something that's been there all along. Salus says, when speaking of novel, quote, like traditional Chinese fiction, the novel is criticized for its flat characters and for its mix of more formal languages of vernacular. He says those are things that Chinese literature is criticized for. That's exactly the Narnia books. Like East and West are not so distinct if you take the time range as more than just 100 years or even within. He goes on to say later, why, when the protagonist faces the world, does she need to win, lose, or draw? That is a Western idea of conflict. Is it? Only in the shallowest interpretation is the most important thing about Oedipus that he wins, loses, or draws? Or about Hamlet? Does the main character in Proust's In Search of Lost Time win, lose, or draw? So many of these broad generalizations he makes about Western literature don't survive contact with the actual art that is made. In order to make his points, I feel he misrepresents the fullness of English literature. Again, I don't blame him for this. He's being contentious. He's got a point to make, but it's still inaccurate. He talks about Michelle Cliff's essay, A Journey into Speech. And so I went ahead, I went online, and I read it. I'll let him describe it. Uh, he says that she writes how she had to break from accepted craft in order to tell her story. Uh, so Cliff uh, grew up under colonial rule in Jamaica. And she was taught the King's English in school. To write well was to write in one specific mode. Okay, so far, so good. Um, this is me again. She got this overly restrictive education and the expectations of the form she learned got in the way of the story she wanted to tell. But then, Salus says, in order to include her own experience, Cliff said she had to reject a British, quote, cold-blooded dependence on logical construction, end quote. So I went and I read her essay. This is her actual quote. She says, I felt my thoughts, things I had held within for a lifetime, traversed so wide a terrain, had so many stops and starts, apparent non sequiturs, that an essay, with its cold-blooded dependence on logical construction, which I had mastered practically against my will, could not work. Me again. Yeah. Wait, Cliff wasn't talking about British standards. She was talking about a certain kind of school essay standards. She writes, this is her again, the Anglican ideal, Milton Wordsworth Keats, was held before us with an assurance that we were unable, would never be enable, to compose work of similar correctness. No reggae spoken here, end quote. Me again. This is an indictment of a certain kind of schooling, not British literature, qua British literature, or even Western literature. Coleridge is visionary and delirious. Dickens is bustling and idiosyncratic. D.H. Lawrence is visceral. He's almost militantly irrational. Jane Austen is funny, perceptive about human weakness, cold-eyed and realistic about economic realities of the world. Emily Bronte's Wuthering Heights is fierce and powerful and wild and improbable. Shakespeare's plays these crowd-pleasing, energetic hodgepodges. None of them read like eternal structures of perfect form. Even Milton, which he mentioned, when you read him, he's liturgically strange. So when he talks about a British, quote, cold-blooded dependence on logical construction, end quote, I mean, first, he mischaracterizes what Michelle Cliff said. 
She was talking about the kinds of essays she was forced to write at school, but he also mischaracterizes British literature. Sometimes when someone's trying so hard to be anti-racist, they go all the way around the bed and start saying things that real racists said a century ago. He moves to the edge of implying, well, logic is just a thing for British people. That's not something non-British people do very naturally, and they have to set it aside in order to do our artistic work. Number one, nobody's very logical when they're being truly artistic. He knows that. But it goes deeper into questions of racial essentialism. Elsewhere, he quotes Zola Neale Hurston's Characteristics of Negro Expression. He says, and says, she, quote, identifies characteristics of African-American storytelling, such as adornment, double descriptions, angularity and asymmetry, and dialect. All are things often edited out of workshop stories in the name of craft. Hurston identifies them in order to legitimize them. End quote. Look, I don't doubt that the workshop dipshits edited this good stuff out. I bet workshop would get rid of all these kind of good things. And that would be bad that we don't have these different ways of telling stories. But there's something queasy about how Salis presents this. I think we should be careful about the excavation and defense of other traditions doesn't slip into racial essentialism. Oh, you know, this is how Black people write. That phrase characteristics of Negro expression, that doesn't sit well with me. Because at this yeah. point, we've all read enough Black writers you know, like Colson Whitehead is completely different from Richard Wright, totally different from Toni Morrison. Yeah. He's, he's trying to make two distinct things that are not so distinct as he says they are. Yeah, you're you're making a strong case that we should not have had Matthew Salis's here as a guest on the podcast. I, uh, I'm picturing us having him as a guest and you're like, okay, I actually read the things that you summed up in your book, Matthew, and uh, here we go. Now I'm getting nail you. And uh, no, that would not have been good. I'm glad he is not here to hear this. Uh, Wait, do you think it was inappropriate that I said that? Is that something you're going to edit no, out? I No, I'm not going to edit this out. I think it's really interesting. I, I love to hear you uh, grapple with the text. And like I said, I think it's very brave of you to grapple with this book that is is supposed to put you on the defensive and you are not on the defensive. You are on the offensive here. You no, no, saying, I'm not on the offensive. I'm taking the book in the spirit that it's meant. And he is a contentious book. And I say, oh, you're contending with it. Yeah, no, like, I, I think it's really good. I, it's good to, I think it's, it's condescending to somebody who writes a contentious or polemical book to not meet it on its terms and like i said before i agree with him most of the time but like this thing rubbed me the wrong way it's precisely because i agree with him 95 percent of the time that when he does something i'm like what he's pulling one over on me when he d- says certain things you know what i mean like it's it, for rhetorical purposes there's a little bit of slippage and he's mischaracterizing stuff that i mean, i don't know from you know eastern literature very well but i do know western literature pretty well and i, I he's mischaracterizing it I mean, I feel like, you know, as I read the book, I'm like, well, if I had him on the show and if he had read my book, would he have accused my book of being hegemonic? Would he have accused my book as being something that is trying to crush the non-white, non-straight, non-able, non-cis voice? And and I think he would. <laughs> I think he would uh-huh. have some problems with some things I'd say in my book. Well, this the is number, especially why you number, shouldn't have had him on. <laughs> <laughs> the number one thing that he would have a big problem with that I say in my first book is I say there is such a thing as human nature. People know how people are. Mm-hmm. And I say this when I talk about how something we've talked about a lot on this podcast, how I believe that we tell stories in order to teach each other how to solve problems and that the sort of identify like these 22 steps that most stories go through. And I say those tend to be the steps that people go through, the steps and missteps that people go through in the solving of a large problem. I think what, what's good about your thing me, is that you you limit it to say, the, I am talking about 
stories that are about the solving of a large problem. You limit your scope early on. You don't say all stories are like this. You say, I'm talking about stories that are about the solving of a large problem. And that's your brilliant move. You bracket all the other stuff and set it aside. You say, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about these kinds of stories. But I talk about how there is such a thing as human nature. I think I what I say is, no matter what your postmodern professors have told you, there is such a thing as human nature. And that he is very much, you know, this book was very much upbraiding me for saying that and was saying human nature is the dominant nature, is the dominant culture, seems like that's what human nature is. And that letting your story naturally go in the direction it wants to go, which is another thing that I basically talk about. I'm not I'm not entirely uncritical of that, but I talk about that. Finding the voice of your characters and waiting for your characters to talk to us. That's something that we've talked about positively on this show, mm-hmm. um, letting your characters talk to you. And I think that this book is a really good corrective to a lot of the things that I say and a good corrective to ideas that I did not examine as thoroughly as I should have examined. And just in general, saying that I think he is right. I think you were right in that you were saying that, and I had the same feelings you did as I read going like, is that really true of Western literature? Like, is that is that is that really true of Western literature that it tends to be this way? Is it really monolithically true of Eastern literature that it tends to be this way? You know, is it fair to broadly generalize and broadly contrast? You did a lot more of the work that of the stuff that was sort of just nagging at me a bit. You've got the receipts here. You're, uh, you've tabulated some examples. But I think that where it, you know, if I were to generalize more of what he's saying, I think is what he is basically saying is that the notion of individual and conflict. I feel like a lot of the specifics of what he's talking about Western literature is saying you're proving are untrue. But I still feel like the general idea of an individual in conflict is something that is very much my focus of my book is I very much talk about how stories are about individuals and I very much talk about how stories are about conflict. And he talks about how the concept of individualism and the concept of conflict are both hegemonic, how these concepts are tied into power structures and are enforcing the dominant power structure in ways that writers should be aware of and should resist. And I think that he makes a strong case for that. And that's why I would have, you know, like, even if we had talked him into coming on the show, it would have been another whole step beyond that to get him to read my books. Um, which, uh, <laughs> yeah. But uh, so I wouldn't have uh, felt comfortable asking him to do that. But I am fascinated to know what he would think of my books. And if he would just if he would just be flat out disgusted by them or if he would uh, think that there was some some good things in there and it would be an issue of throwing out the baby with the bathwater or if he would find anything useful in them. I am absolutely fascinated to know. But I don't know. I feel like you're being too tough on the book. I feel like that, you know, this is a polemic. Um, this is something where he is he is arguing for students who are getting abused by the system the way it is, which I'm certainly sympathetic to. But who and... cares about these students? Like, how much... <laughs> what, how much... Horrible, what a horrible thing to say, Jay. How, but, no, but honestly, I mean, these are just rich kids. Like, how, how much, like, cultural impact do they really have? Nobody reads literary fiction. Like, like it's like I, I don't know. What he's saying is that they are bringing more poor students into these programs. They are bringing more. I'm sure it's very diversity. little. 
there are diversity measures to bring in more diversity into these programs and that these people are not being well served by the way that these programs were developed. And I, I am I, certainly sympathetic to that. Yeah, I'm sympathetic to that. I just I don't like how Salus is trying to reduce all of Western lit the whole history of it to the conventions and expectations of University of Iowa's workshop program, which has only been around since 1936. And judging from what sells and what, what most normal people consume doesn't have the cultural impact that Salesis seems to think it does. I think that I am ready to cut the book a lot more slack than you are, I think. I agree with all Oh, I, I cut it slack. I mean, I, 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 th- I think I'm giving it the dignity of engaging with it and not are. just saying, oh, you're right. Okay, done. You know, like you have to engage with it if you're going, if you want to give something respect, you have to engage with it. You can't, giving something respect is not just saying you're right and then moving on. Yes. And it's very hard to do. It's very hard to engage with things these days because there is a sense of what are your real motives and, you know, are you... Are you coming at this from a 4chan perspective? Are you are you taking the piss? Is this shits and giggles? Are you shitposting? I, I think that people know that we're a serious podcast. I think people know that we're, that we're a serious podcast. Good faith. But uh, it must have been very hard for Salises to publish this book and deal with yes. criticisms of this book that, and not knowing to what degree these criticisms are genuine and to what degree they are made in good faith which well, do you is wanna... so hard to tell in our modern culture what when criticisms are made in good faith and when right but not. we can always we can always assume that when we are making a criticism we are making it in good faith so let's have let's trust ourselves that we are good people and and say the things that we can say knowing that we don't mean any harm and that we more or less agree with this guy and, and and then let the chips fall where they may. Like we can't be, you can't go through life being afraid. Yeah, I agree. Um, so let me go ahead and talk about what my closing thoughts were about the book. I like his idea that there is no such thing as pure creation, that basically there is no such thing as a blank page. You sit down and you think there is a blank page in front of you, but in fact, there is already a ton of writing on that page as, that you are grappling with as a writer. And, you know, he talks about the, how one of the first things you're taught in school is to just use ask and said, because if you just use ask and said over and over again, it feels repetitive, but in fact, those words are invisible to the reader and that they just allow the reader to focus on what's being said and instead of how they're saying it. Whereas if you use a word like queried instead of asked, that then that calls attention to itself. But he talks about that that's assuming that the person is coming from a culture in which these are the invisible words asked and said. They could be coming from a culture in which queried is the normal word instead of This, this is his one of his rhetorical moves. Yes, this is one of his rhetorical moves. He talks about like, oh, but if you're from a query culture, then, you know, and he, I think this is a good way of discussing this. He talks about how this is the reason why the page is not blank. This is the reason why, are you from an ask culture or a query culture? Are you from a culture in which the words said in ask will be essentially invisible to the audience? or not, and that you need to be aware that you are everything you write is written for a certain assumption about your audience, and you need to be more conscious of what assumptions you're making about your audience, what assumptions you should make about your audience, and what the different audiences are, and writing toward those audiences instead of just trying to write to some 
ideal without realizing that that ideal is a Western ideal, without realizing that that ideal is part of a certain hegemony. And I think that was really interesting. I think that's really useful to me as a writer. But so I read this, I'm like going, okay, well, is there such thing as human nature? And I'm like, the work of fiction that I am most distant from is Gilgamesh. It is the old, the earliest surviving work of literature that we have. And I read Gilgamesh and I am right there. I am like, this is human nature. I These characters are fundamentally the same as me. They have fundamentally the same human nature as me. Oh, when you said and, the work of literature I was more, most distant from, I thought you meant like psychologically. But no, you mean distant in time. But actually, you're very close to it psychologically. Sorry, yes. I misunderstood you at first. I just want to make yes. that. I just want to signpost that for people. Yes. And I feel like, but, you know, of course, I'm reading Gilgamesh in translation, and it's a recent translation of somebody who is from my own culture. Well, also, Gilgamesh like, is like a bunch of fragments. Uh, they, every translation makes a lot of artistic uh, choices. About, yes. like, it's a bunch of like conflicting fragments. It's not like one work that like we, like, like Shakespeare or something. Like and, there's a bunch of stuff. And there's certainly elements when I read Gilgamesh where I'm like, okay, this is clearly not my culture. There seems to be an assumption that when you go to church, you're going to have sex with a priestess. And like, that's not, that's not my experience. But that, you know, I'm like, okay, I can identify in the ways, ways which this was a very different culture than mine, but I can identify the ways in which the human nature is the same as mine. But then I'm like, well, that was in translation. I'm like, well, what about stuff that's not in translation? Well, I can't read Beowulf, which is written the earliest thing you know that we have that's written in my own language. Um, you it's know, not I written can't... in your language. Uh, go read it. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I have attempted to read it. I cannot read it. I can't really read Chaucer. I can't get through Chaucer. The earliest English language writer I can read is Shakespeare. and But Shakespeare, I'm totally there with. Beowulf is, might as well be written in Latin or something. I mean, it, it, there, there is no connection, it feels, to English. Chaucer, I think you can kind of puzzle it out. My uh, mom had to read Beowulf. My mom had to, you know, she got, she was a doctor of English literature and she had to read Beowulf in the original. I had to suffer through that. It's hard for me not to read my favorite literature and go like, this is human nature. Mm. I am reaching across time and space to this very different time and place. And I'm feeling like there is something that connects me to it. I'm feeling like there is something here that is human literature. And that is what I am trying to get at in my own writing. I am trying to speak to the same thing that I am getting from Gilgamesh and Shakespeare. And, but, you know, but this, reading this book, Craft in the Real World, makes me think, you know, like, well, you know, I need to, I definitely need to be more aware of myself and more wary of myself when I am trying to let characters just speak to me or when I'm trying to find my voice or identify one thing as a voice, like, oh, this is voice. And whenever I was giving people notes on their manuscripts, the most uncomfortable notes to give were voice notes. That like, um, I think you've got voice problems. I don't think anybody ever wants to hear that. Like you have, James, in your novels, you have a strong voice. Although it's very different in the two novels you've published. Those two novels have very different authorial voices. And the novel that the two novels that you've read of mine that have not been published have voices that are distinct from those first two. Yes. Frog Boy and Bride of the Tornado. You have a strong sense of voice. You do not have a single authorial voice that you use when you write. Your voice you come up with very distinct voices for very distinct novels that you write. Do you get 
voice notes? Do you get voice notes from Redditors? And how do you grapple with voice notes? What do you mean a voice note? Do you say like, I don't like your voice here. You need to work on your voice here. Your authorial voice on this page is not strong enough, is not present enough, or is too present. They would not say anything so vague. The editors that I've at Quirk have not said anything so vague. Like, what would they say instead? Here's the thing: my I get very lately edited, and when I was very um, aggressively edited for Order of Oddfish, I resisted it and ran out the clock in various ways, and so I would not be edited. But in terms of dare to know, like it was not they, they didn't have any problem with the voice, although a lot of people on Goodreads have problem with the voice. Uh, um, but the uh, they. they I think any kind of note that they had was kind of more towards maybe they weren't thinking this, but I think it's a note behind the note. How do we make this something that somebody will actually buy and recommend to their friends? I think once you get to a certain point, it's no longer what is the art of it. Like what is the art of it is like what the the first 80% of it. And then once it's accepted at a publishing house, we assume the art is done. And then we're like, okay, how do we get motherfuckers to buy this shit? Um, So they they would not have bought it if they didn't like the voice. Exactly. They and they basically bought it going like, we like this voice, we're going to buy it, and then we're not going to give you any more notes on voice. We're going to assume that if we bought it, then we liked the voice, and we're going to give you notes on making this more commercial. We're not going to give you notes on tweaking the voice at all. In in terms of like voice, I I, th- I think maybe they probably like kind of made me kind of walk back a couple steps on like how harsh he was in his assessment of others and dare to know. Yeah, um, which is definitely, he's harsh. <laughs> I mean, yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's one of the things in that book that, you know, it's like, wow, you know, this is an opinionated hero. You know, I'm really sick of people being careful. This is just the story of my life since 2019. Like everybody is so afraid of their own shadow. And this is, and you can't write if you're afraid of your own shadow. And if you don't have characters who are free to be unlikable and shitty, when you make a, a mean or, or, jerky character you're not creating a mean or jerky person and setting them out for, uh, uh, in the world to cause mischief they're, they're just sitting in there in the book they're imaginary like you're not committing a crime by making a bad person on the page um i, I think that people's brains have been broken by the internet and by twitter discourse about literature should work but it, you know actually people's brains have broadly not been broken most people know how to read but there are some people whose brains have been broken and they don't know how to read anymore. Yeah, um, that's certainly true. And those people wrote your Goodreads reviews. Well, I, 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 I have pretty uh, polarized Goodreads reviews. I have <laughs> people do. who you love it. I have people who hate it. Very positive Goodreads reviews. Yes. Uh, um, they're like it, it's it's a it's a, it's a there's people who love it. There's people who hate it. People who's like I don't know what I read and I loved it, but I don't know what I read and I hated it. You know what? Not everybody loved Eraserhead either. I'm fine with it. Go force a bunch of people to watch Eraserhead. See what they think about it. So are you done with your reaction? Your final thoughts on it? Do you want me to talk about my final thoughts? Yes. Okay. What are your final thoughts? Sales just talks about craft a lot. For me, like craft is like, you know, when Augustine talks about time, like he says, like when I don't think about it, I assume I know what it is. But when I actually consider it for more than a few seconds, I have no idea what it means. You know that I'm famous... Sorry, who- who was Augustine? Oh, St. Augustine. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Wait, Augustine or Augustine? I've always called him Augustine. It's Augustine? I've always called him Augustine. Okay. Uh, listeners, <laughs> chime in. Okay, craft. I don't know what it means beyond knowing how to write well, right? But when something like that happens, they, there's like a 
a word that covers up a lot of stuff, there's a good chance that word is covering up a bunch of unexamined things that should be interrogated. I think that's what this book is really good for, right? Like right. you, you have a, a, a big, vague word that kind of compels you in certain ways, but you need to kind of lift up that rock and look at what's underneath it. And I think that's really valuable. I think he he does. I mean, I love this book and I, I love his voice. I love the way that he talks about this stuff. Like I, I, I know I got a little critical about it, but I love it. Like I, I filled this book with comments, which I almost never do. I wrote in the margin of this book again and again, agreeing, disagreeing, but loving this guy the whole way being on his side. Like he wrote like to learn craft. He's trying to say like, what is craft? is to learn how to use cultural expectations to your advantage. I think that's the best non-bullshit definition of craft I've heard. Yeah, that, but, yeah, it's an excellent point. But it also hides a lot because it includes that clause to your advantage. <laughs> to one's advantage to be artistically successful, commercially successful, both. It's a good definition because it, it carries a lot in it. Elsewhere, or culturally he's, successful. Are you trying yeah, to? Are you trying to win Twitter? What are you? Trying yeah, to yeah, do? exactly. I mean, that's contemptible. But yeah, apropos of that, he says elsewhere, the Western novel is a product of the middle class. It is written by people in the middle class for an audience of people in the middle class. And I'm thinking, yeah, it's true. And that can even be taken as a radical critique, or as canny advice on how to proceed and get ahead. <laughs> And I think like when you have when somebody says things like that that are bivalent like that, then you know you have a good writer. They give you the room to think both things at once. He talks about things that are live issues for me too. He says, like cultural expectations apply to how we characterize, why some characters are called unsympathetic and others are not, how we plot by causation and agency rather than by coincidence, how we emphasize conflict, how we expect characters to change or at least actively fail to change, etc. Those like I like I am a big advocate of the unsympathetic narrator like i love notes from underground i love dare to know certainly reminded me of notes from underground that was you know when i was trying to describe the hero after reading it i'm like he's like uh you know notes from underground but it's also a fan's notes you yeah. know uh, or uh even you know in in like certain limited ways compared to theory of dunces like i i want to these are live issues to me he's he's talking to like i was like oh yeah these are things can be interrogated this whole idea of like a sympathetic protagonist i'm on your side i think his take on writing is overly affected by the fact that he's in the mfa world and so it's grown in his mind to be bigger than it actually is culturally and yeah. I think it's affected by all the awful students he's had to teach over the years. Yeah, I'm sure. He says, we know all about the privilege it takes to write, I guess, except that many successful writers did not come from privilege. Stephen King wrote his, you know, Carrie and Salem's Lot, his first two novels. He was dirt poor living in a trailer. More recently, the mega seller, Colleen Hoover, she also literally wrote herself out of the trailer park. Yeah. I know J.K. Rowling is a villain now, but remember, she was a single mother living on the dole when she wrote the first Harry Potter books. These aren't privileged people. My overwhelming reaction to this book is, oh my God, I'm so glad I never took a creative writing class or got an MFA because it sounds like hell. Yeah. Like, I bet some people get a lot out of creative writing classes and MFAs, and those are good people. And I have friends who have been through these programs and they have, and I know that there are people who are bestsellers and great writers who have been through MFA programmers programs. I'm not saying anything against them. I have friends who teach creative writing. I bet they do a great job. But for me, personally, it sounds like you have to manage the egos and expectations of a bunch of people who haven't made it yet either. And that sounds exhausting. Uh, Salas's does a great job of making it sound terrible. 
Um, <laughs> but then the second half of the book comes around. It's just, and we talked about this before. It's this positive recommendation, recommendations of how things can change. He shares his syllabus and stuff. And frankly, that sounds terrible too. Schools for fools, Daddy-O. That's my uh, take on the book. Schools for fools, Daddy-O. Okay, I think that's a good way to wrap it up. Um, so this was a lot of fun. It is, I've missed doing this podcast with you, James. It is nice to be back. There's other things to talk about other than Marvel Comics. My other podcast, Marvel Reread Club, where I discuss comic books with my brother Steve, is going strong. We now have more episodes that we have released in a year and a half than we have released of this podcast in the almost six years <laughs> we've been doing this podcast now. But, but Matt, we, our podcasts are, I haven't listened to any of the stuff you've done your brother. I'm sorry. but. These podcasts are high content, high quality. Yes. Don't you think? I think that like the podcast I do with my brother, these are also high content, high quality. <laughs> and that's my thing. I'm a high content, high quality guy. But I feel like these are wonderful podcasts. And I don't know if people, I think people are going to be, we're going to shock the hell out of people when they see this show up in their Apple podcast feed. Why? And it's suddenly going to be... It's suddenly oh. gonna this this podcast is going to show up at the top of their Apple podcast feed when it has been dwelling at the bottom of their Apple podcast. Oh, they've feed all unsubscribed from us a long months. time ago. Do people, uns- I don't think people ever unsubscribe from podcasts. I do. I you do. do. Yeah. If it hasn't updated in a while, you unsubscribe. Like I need to like find room on my phone and like I, I realize like a bunch of things are automatically downloading podcasts. And so instead of like kind of like making it stop automatically downloading, I just like get rid of the podcast yeah i don't automatically download anything i just i just have it show up you know i it shows up at the top of my feed but i don't automatically download it because then yeah your phone fills up anyway so let's go ahead and wrap this up I wait wait hold on i got one more thing to say what's that rule breaking yeah i i think this is very important and i i'm sorry i didn't talk about it yet he talks about show don't tell like he, he skewers these empty maxims right they're mechanically repeated. Show, don't tell. Write what you know. Kill your darlings. But then you have to know the rules in order to break them. Do you remember that part of the book? Yes. D- didn't he do a great job of taking that down? Especially, this is my take. When you look at how culture actually changes, it's not. It's never changed by people who have learned all the rules. They've properly ingested them. And then they carefully and with much craft break them. Yeah. Actual fresh ideas and interesting stuff comes from naive writers who don't know the rules or care. Rock and roll didn't come from people with a solid foundation in classical music who thought, you know, let's take what Beethoven was doing and make it even more visceral with different instruments. It bubbled up from something else. So Salus's expertly dismantles you have to know the rules in order to break them. He says, it's really an argument about who gets to make the rules, whose rules get to be the norms and determine the exceptions. But I want to extend that. Who gets the privilege to make other people waste their time learning other people's rules. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like he says like writing that follows non-dominant cultural standards is often treated as if it's breaking the rules, but why one set of rules, not another? What is official? What does it always have to do with power? You know, I have to say with that, I kind of like veer from him. I'm like, but there's no cultural power in something described as following the rules. You know what I mean? Like, maybe like in medieval times there was, but not now. Nobody says, oh my God, this great book was so great, it followed all the rules. Right. You know what I mean? People love to seek out and use as praise. Oh, God, it broke all the rules. So I don't know if he's on firm ground there. Like, look at the things that actually succeed. Ragtime and jazz were dismissed by traditional musicians. Like Star Wars, all of Lucas's friends hated it. It got bad reviews from the New Yorker and the Wall Street Journal. 
And frankly, Donald Trump, all the wise people said he wouldn't win, and then he won. All these people, they, for good or for bad, Donald Trump's case, bad, broke all the rules. People said you had to do things by these ways, and then they were successful. So I mean, this I, idea... I, I think it's, it's a little too... You know, Donald Trump may surprise us. He may turn out to be an okay guy. <laughs> now I know you're going to take this out. Uh, um but like this whole idea of like, like I, I think he's so on the money about like uh, you got to know the rules to break them. It reminds me of she wrote the Last Samurai, not the Tom Cruise movie, but the book The Last Samurai. Uh, do you know who I'm talking about? No, I don't. Oh my god, um, it, it's a great novel. One must read it. It's by Helen Dewitt. Okay, and she in, in the beginning of the story, and I'm not going to tell what the whole story is about. But the beginning of the story, there's this whole anecdote of like. There's this guy, and he was real, like, it felt like my alternate history. It felt like if I had listened to my parents, this is how my life would have turned out. Please don't cut this out. This is very important to me. Like, he said, okay, there's this, uh, there's this person in, like, the, the main character's family, and he was really gifted. He had a chance to go to Harvard or, or Princeton or something. This is, like, the early 1900s. And, but he came from this very religious family, and the religious family said, hey, you know what? Okay, you can go to Harvard or Princeton or whatever, but first go to this religious college, you know, and see what they know. And then you can take what they know. You can take that stuff. And once you've really learned the tradition that you're from, then you can go and take that to Harvard and and kind of like put it against them and, you know, kind of break the rules, you you know, but, you know, but first it's really learn this stuff, where you're from. He says, he's a dutiful boy. So, okay, I'll go do that. He goes to the religious college and he goes back to Harvard. Harvard says, yeah, you've already been to college. We've rescinded our full scholarship. You can't go here. And so he realizes, oh my God, I never got to go to Harvard. I went to this shitty religious college and I learned nothing. Um, And and, and it's this great bait and switch. It's this really like kind of like, ah, moment. And that is what, Learn the rules before you break them, says to me. Waste all of your time learning how to write the perfect Raymond Carver short story before you can write Douglas Adams or whatever. Douglas Adams didn't give a shit. He just wrote a Douglas Adams story. You know what I mean? And so um, that that is, I, I'm so on Sales's side. I, I need to really make this clear. 97% of the time. I have a couple quibbles about the history of literature, but I, I want to end on that. He's right. He's right on so much. Okay, let's go ahead and wrap it up. Thanks, James, for coming out. Let's do. Let's not wait another nine months to do our next episode. Let's do it again soon. Bye, America. We nailed it. <laughs> Bye. Thank you for listening to the Secrets of Story podcast. Please subscribe and rate us wherever you found us. Go to secretsofstory.com and click on the Secrets of Story podcast in the sidebar to find notes and join the discussion about this episode. Find out about James's novels, Dare to Know, and The Order of Oddfish, and more at jameskennedy.com. Our music is by Haddon Kime. Our logo is by Jessica Friday. See you next time.